for the Chris Idell and Neil Modi podcast. <laughs> that was Chris and Neil. <laughs> I think this is episode number five. Uh, we have a few. We tried to start uh, an episode uh, on Friday, but a friend of ours from a, a newspaper could not record. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, so mm. here we are with our official number five. We're going to talk about China, uh, trade, uh, the trading patterns, uh, trade deficits, and uh, biotech in the public markets. And just like you, I'm here normally to learn and listen to Chris quite a bit and uh, see how I can become a better investor, especially since he has such a broad market uh, for public markets understanding. And I look at things from a venture capital perspective. Mm. So I can learn from Neil Modi very much <laughs> about how you turn a crinkled up $5 bill in your pocket and a great idea into something that changes the world. So That's my focus for sure. So I, I hope to, yeah. to share some of what I learned along the way. Yeah. Let's talk about the trade deficits. That's where we, were, where we started from. Let's talk about that. You were telling yeah, me Friday. Yeah, yeah. So it's April 6th. 2016 and February trade numbers were just released and they show not surprisingly that the US trade deficit hits a six-month high 47 billion um, that's probably seasonally adjusted because I've seen numbers that show um, without any sort of currency adjustment it's 63.3 billion for February um, which is the largest in about a year with the seasonal adjustment, it's the largest deficit in six months. <clears throat> but anyway, it suggests that uh, trade volumes certainly rolling over. It also might suggest, of course, we at the, in the U.S. are importing more than we export. That gap is widening. So it suggests greater weakness in the rest of the world um, than here at home, here in the U.S. But, you know, what we talked about last Friday, Neil, together was just how global trade volumes have been rolling over. Um, and that's been the case, well, for Japan and China for five years. <laughs> um, global trade volumes, not dollar values, not values, but volumes, which is more critical. Because if you're not trading the same amount of stuff, the volumes going down, then that's a recessionary indicator. Currencies fluctuate, of course, and many games are played with the currencies, so it's a less reliable indicator to just look at the dollar value um, of trade. So volumes have rolled over, and it is kind of interesting to me, too, when you look at the, the S&P 500, which peaked, um, well, last May, but um, really has struggled since the end of 2014, um, you know, and see that sort of correlation um, between the trade volumes peaking and the domestic stock market peaking. Um, so what gives, Neil? So, so tell me, are you predicting, because uh, you know how I love to force your predictions, are you predicting mm. that um, we're going to see a recession here? And, you know, obviously there's a cycle, right? Uh, we're past our seven-year cycle right now. Okay, uh, I'm going to get more specific. Will you predict the month you think that we'll start to really understand there's a recession and when it will be reported by whoever's on TV reporting news, Peter Jennings or whoever covers that? 
Yeah. I, um, we've never seen the economics profession predict a recession. Um, I mean, generally, certainly not the public-facing economists, even a a major recession like 2007-8. So I don't expect those, um, the profession, (laughs) the economics profession to lead us. Um, but the, it certainly seems that given these numbers, and even when we look um, today, you know, we see that um, Burlington Northern Santa Fe gives us a snapshot of the economy because freight shipments are way down, 6% lower in 2016 so far. So this is for the, uh, just the first quarter, um, and that's for all U.S. railroads, and at the same point last year in 2015. It's really getting harder to trivialize these trends and say that they don't matter. So it certainly seems that if we're not already in a technical recession, then one is likely to come. Now, it's always possible that there's a fill-up, that something changes and trade volumes pick up. I, though, for the life of me, just can't see um, when or what the, the catalyst would be for that. But then... I don't know. It's happened before, um, and I've been surprised. Still, Neil, I think you know it's one thing to predict it. I do believe we'll have a recession, but in the old and tried and true way of predictions, don't give a date. <laughs> if you predict an event, don't give the time, and if you predict the time, don't give the event. So, yes, we'll absolutely. Can you give me a range? A do you think it'll happen before, after the election? I mean, come on. Well, it's interesting. You know, the so-called non-political Federal Reserve, which, of course, all central banks are ultimately political, um, especially nowadays, um, has always supported the incumbency um, by lowering interest rates and easing into a an election year. So it's created this traditional cycle effect where the economy gets a little bump or a fill-up in election years. And it's led to many um, market watchers to predict that that same thing would happen and to push any idea of a recession or a market crisis out well into the future, at least through next year. But I don't know. The the Federal Reserve, the central banks of the world have pretty much exhausted, (laughs) so I think, their toolkit. And can we say negative interest rates? Yeah, can we say negative interest rates? Right, a sign of desperation for sure. And an attempt to convince us all that they still have um, some ammunition or some arrows in their quiver. And maybe they do, but there are seven countries now with negative interest rates. Um, And in most of those countries, Ironically, of course, well, not ironically, it hasn't helped, but the irony has been lowering of the savings rate is supposed to boost economic activity, meaning really consumption in the modern world, and it's actually triggered an increase in savings in places like Sweden and Japan. They're normally higher savings rate countries, but still, when you push interest rates to zero, it doesn't really give you an incentive to save, and then you push interest rates negative, I guess maybe um, at least the theoretical model suggests people would spend even faster 
and save less, but ironically it's flipped over and people have to save more to um, protect themselves in the future than they would otherwise. So it's a, don't trust the models always, Neil. Always look at them with a little bit of suspicion, right? So, so do you think we'll get an opportunity to buy a house in downtown Tokyo in, in, uh, at a you know, 50% discount in the next two years? If you use gold, yes. <laughs> if you buy with 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 well, I'm Indian. Currency. That should work okay, right? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I think um, more and more gold is functioning like intellectual property does. Um, a world you're very familiar with. Um, it's there to solve a problem, and the problem right now has been created by most central banks um, using their respective economies as a monetary test kitchen hold on so before so, I, before i move to china and transition with gold into china with me um do you predict that the gold price is gonna go up i mean i remember when i was a kid it was like two three hundred bucks an ounce now what is it trading at today an ounce 1200 yeah. 1240 it's in that range yeah and it got up you to know, 1400 at, at its peak right uh, up to 1911 intraday 1911. Okay. in 2011. Yeah, so, so a big, big rally. So yeah. what, when will we see the 1911 uh, mark broken? Well, you know, back in the 1970s, which was the last gold bull market um, when the currencies around the world were being trashed, um, which is a parallel to today, although a different environment, of course, the gold price rose dramatically from 1971 to 74, and then took a consolidation or had a mini bear market for two years, roughly August of 74 to the August of 76-ish. And um, then the gold price took off again because nothing had fundamentally changed with the practice of central banking and the underlying economies were still weak. And I think there's a parallel today, you know, the gold price peaked in 2011. It rallied a little bit back from its high um, and the subsequent dip in 2012, but in 2013, the gold price just took a header down and fell by about a third. Um, and it's been bouncing along in that bottom, consolidating for the last three years. Um, this year so far, it's sprung like a coiled spring back to life um, especially with all the talk of banning cash, uh, which is, of course, the way, probably the only way you can really enforce a negative interest rate. So, um, you know, you have to keep people captive if you're going to gradually chip away at their savings. Wait, so, <laughs> so, so what's your prediction? To be really clear, what's your prediction when gold prices? Yeah, no, my prediction is much higher gold prices. Um, so you think we'll beat 1911, what, in the next two years? Oh, gosh, I don't know if I can, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing. Um, gold doesn't have a yield, so it defies traditional investment analysis. But again, um, that IP uh, analogy comes to mind in that um, sort of a function of culture and the timing um, and, and what's necessary um, for people, in this case, to solve a problem, which is protecting their savings, protecting their futures as best they can. Just stepping back, globally, all the central banks are wedded to the same idea. The big idea is to cheapen their currencies, 
um, as a way both to reduce the real cost of the debt they've accumulated, and secondly, to try to, in the short term, stimulate trade. Now, the global trade statistics we talked about earlier give the lie to that last objective. It's not worked. China and Japan have been desperately, well, not so much China with the currency. They've uh, anchored it to the dollar, but the dollar was weak. And so in train, the Chinese currency, the yuan, fell. But Japan's been very actively cheapening the the yen. Um, but yet for five years, their trade deficits have gotten wider. It's rolled over. They've not been trading any greater volume than they did five years ago. Uh, the same is true of China. Um, and some people will blame that partially on the strengthening dollar over the last 14 months to 18 months. Um, but even now that that's rolled over, Chinese trade is still languishing. So, uh, again, China's cheapening their currency. Japan's cheapening their currency. Draghi is trying to push the euro down. Um, Korean won is down, the Australian dollar. Everyone's racing their currencies to the bottom. And I have to believe that the real beneficiary of that is going to be commodities generally, but commodity money in particular, hard hard currencies um, like gold, silver, precious metals, even platinum, <laughs> other things that could be considered a store of value. So, yeah, higher. So higher. where are people – let's move over to China. Where, where do you think people are primarily going to store their value in China, right? Back oh, on corruption and, 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 you know – Insane deficit. They keep printing up more uh, currency to keep up with. Um, yeah. And and the mass migration to Irvine. <laughs> Irvine, San Marino. <laughs> yeah, Vancouver. It's been um, an amazing exodus of capital, a huge capital flight out of China, which they've um, invariably and at different points in time tried to stem with um, corruption dragnets, different forms of capital controls, um, arrests and intimidation. Um, and definitely the, the capital outflow has slowed from China. They've also um, tried to um, arrest the decline in the Chinese currency, which probably um, stemmed some of the money that was leaving China in search of safer um, and more secure locations and a place to be. Uh, but the, it's been in China, if you're a Chinese citizen of normal, ordinary means, it's been real estate um, and these so-called wealth management products. But those have been blowing up left and right. They're not what we would consider wealth management um, investments. They are largely um, pools of loans, credit instruments, that are offered by the banking institutions in China um, for people to get higher than bank rates of uh, interest. So uh, many of them were loans to state-owned enterprises, SOEs, which are the dogs of the Chinese economy, but supported by the central government because they're a legacy of the socialist slash communist um, rearguard. So <clears throat> it's, it's tough, you know. People have been predicting for a long time that China would would collapse, or that there would be some big. Um, hey, we even have a prediction from you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a big. I mean, for me, you know, I've. I just think. Um, I even mentioned to you before that the 
the one thing you know about China is how little you can know <laughs> about what's really going on. Right. But you can get a sense of history, you know. The Chinese um, have generally culturally favored very large engineering-style projects from the Three Gorges Dam to the Great Wall to the Grand Canal, um, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, uh, uh, really um, excite the uh, imagination for China. And, and they've been able to, it's remarkable, the things that they can accomplish in that vein. But the, much of that idea has been replaced, or at least uh, a corollary to that is the, the building of these giant real estate projects, whole cities and office towers and skyscrapers and shopping malls that are, for the most part, empty. And uh, it's pretty eerie. Every 10 years, China elects a new government. And historically, most of the bad debts that China's accumulated, because this process has been ongoing, it's just not as, it hasn't been as all-consuming and as large as it is now. But China's been able to roll over non-performing loans um, in bundles and hide them inside of um, their state-run investment firms like CITIC. And CITIC will pay interest to those bondholders. You know, they securitize these bad loans, um, and they pay interest because they get some backdoor payments from the Chinese government. So it's really an optical illusion. Um, but this brings to mind now how big the problem is. Hyman Minsky is an old economist of, uh, from the United States who was very active in writing during the Great Depression and later. And reflecting on the Depression, he coined a term called Ponzi finance, where um, he recognized that the debts, the cumulative overhang of debt could grow in a society up until the point it couldn't. And he said, you cross over into this Ponzi finance when all the new borrowing that's accomplished is only accomplished to roll over old debts and to pay the debt service, especially that, on the existing debt stock, on the existing stock of debt. So all the new borrowing doesn't go to any new investment, any new projects. It's simply there to create this optical illusion that the old debts are still being serviced. Now, how long can you do this? This really is a Ponzi scheme, right? It's like paying Insanity. off the old investors with the new investors' money. So you've got new bondholders' money, and you're paying off the old bondholders with it. It is exactly a Ponzi scheme, but China's been able to, to manage that. Every 10 years or so, they've been doing it. Now they're doing it in a way um, in the, the real economy, Total social financing, which is total bank debt in China. It's a clever name, right? Total social financing. <laughs> <laughs> good, good for good the communist leaders. Yeah, good marketing. Um, but that has grown by a trillion dollars in January alone, which are the last figures I have. What's... So the total bank debt or total social financing in China was only $5 trillion only. <laughs> it's a big number for a Chinese economy. But back when Lehman Brothers failed in 2008... Was around five trillion. Today it's over thirty-six trillion, and it's growing by a trillion dollars a month. Um, if January can be extrapolated, um, 
is about seven hundred billion U.S. dollars in growth in December-ish. So it it keeps escalating, and it suggests um, Hyman Minsky's warning about Ponzi finance that all of this new borrowing is just going to plug the holes in the old borrowing and to satisfy old bondholders. Well, so so, so um, walk, walk how long can that minute. go? I don't know. Walk through me through this for a minute. I, I remember reading in the last major economic downturn, a lot of people in Russia bought a lot of real estate, right? All of a sudden, all of the oligarchs wanted to buy every piece of farmland that existed. I could have gotten that wrong. Is that correct? I'm making a bunch of assumptions know, to Neil. ask questions. Yeah, that's not okay. a... But, but the real thing, estate does become a popular safe haven right. investment. So, so I've got two, two more follow-up questions to that. So whether I was right or wrong on, on, on that... Um, are the Chinese, is the average Chinese investor going to invest in more real estate in China or are they going to invest in more real estate in Irvine um, or are they, and are they going to start to buy more farmland? The reason I ask about the farmland is you mentioned a stat when we were together on Friday that, what is it, two, only 2% of the population of the world lives, you know, around or near a farm, on a farm. Where, oh, in the United States. Yeah, in the United in States. The in the United States, okay. And what was it uh, when we were 50 years ago? You were giving me the rest of that? Yeah, so I, I look at China in some ways in this stage in its development, a lot like the United States was um, right before the 1920s boom or right after. You know, I mean, the, the, the roaring 20s was a great time of um, growth in the U.S., a lot of new technologies, the um, electrification uh, of the countryside, the utilities were growing, railroads were crisscrossing the country, roads were being built, the trucking industry started. Um, amazing, amazing time. And the rural population um, in 1918 was finally just then exceeded by the urban population. So um, right at the start of the 1920s and the end of World War I, we saw this crossover where there were more people in U.S. cities than there were on the farms. Um, and that's been an inexorable trend. You know, as I mentioned, only about 2% of the U.S. population is involved in or engaged in farming, lives in agricultural hinterland. And in China, that trend has um, just occurred over the last five years or so. Um, so... Some argue that it's going to reverse as the factories close um, and exports dwindle in China. China's central government has so far been able to resist that by creating jobs in construction and trying also, of course, to fend off any social unrest because that's the big taboo for any um, leader in China, mostly throughout Asia, but in China in particular, there's this concept of the mandate of heaven. And if there's social unrest or luan or disorder, as they call it, then it means you have lost the right to govern. The mandate of heaven has been lost and you must be replaced. So governments in China, the central government, is always, always, always concerned about um, social unrest, protests. You know, I mean, I believe that there are probably many, many protests in China about working conditions and other things that are just quickly squashed, things that we don't even hear about here in the West, way across the Pacific. 
so I, um, and I know, of course, I was in China um, at the time of Tiananmen Square. <laughs> and most people who were witness to that can remember how uh, once the decision was made to end those um, the student movement, how quickly and the, decisively the march the on the tanks. Moved. Yeah, yeah, they they brought in the Red Army. Well, no, no, no. The, the, the students the students stood up to the tank, right, and nobody would shoot them. Yes, yeah, but I remember that. You know, yeah, to bring in tanks, it's kind of unbelievable. Um, I mean, we've seen it here in the U.S. where we had Ferguson, Missouri, right, and we had not quite tanks, but armored vehicles and <laughs> so-called policemen in camouflage. I don't want to make too big a distinction, but, you know, to actually bring in the Red Army, which were mostly um, soldiers from the countryside, into the city, um, into Beijing, against unarmed students who were actually hunger strikers, for the most part, was, was a pretty bold uh, move, you know. Anyway, but they... Uh, you know, that it worked. <laughs> and I have to say, you know, that the students were in many ways successful. Looking back, the reformers won for the most part. And China kept progressing um, to just a, a really amazing growth story and probably lifted over 400 million people up out of poverty um, in the countryside through their industrialization um, and because it happened so rapidly. But, you know, um, now it seems that that, uh, that growth is slowing, as it always would and should, but the credit growth has not slowed, and there's a big mismatch. So they're continuing to build these liabilities, which probably won't be paid. I would say will not be paid, but this is true of all of the Western world as well. And if China's doing anything, they're just copying the West, <laughs> you know, in that sense. So. Chris, let, let's shift over to biotech and uh, you know the med device companies and what's going on in the public markets. Obviously, being a life science uh, venture investor, uh, I'm always mm -hmm. even more interested in your opinion in this sector field, although I don't look at pharma. I'm still interested in what's going on there. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, we, we're in this weird space where we've kind of seen, it seems like a peak traditional pharma. Companies like Valiant, which is on the ropes for many reasons. Um, <laughs> right, sort of right. Accounting fraud. But that model became very popular where they would buy an existing drug, drug company, roll it up into Valiant, cut the R&D to virtually nothing. So um, really, they're just milking the existing drugs um, raise the price on those existing drugs if they were still under patent protection um, and um, cut the R&D so they were really able to squeeze a lot more profit out of an existing drug. Um, they followed that model religiously and attracted, of course, Wall Street's greatest promoters and many hedge fund managers. The growth rates were astounding, but the reality is when you think, as I do, Neil, about the long-term benefits to civilization, <laughs> they're not there. Um, and now that model seems to be falling apart. I mean, <clears throat> you know, you have other companies that, that followed a similar path like Allergan. Um, Allergan, though, didn't believe in cutting the R&D budgets in that same way. 
So drug companies that they acquired conceivably still could produce new ideas, new drugs, new treatments, new therapies, things that help to keep civilization <laughs> healthier <laughs> and advancing. Um, well, and I think that's how the pharma, pharma VCs are doing well, right? I mean, they're essentially becoming the R&D arm of these bigger companies. Right, Somebody right. Somebody comes well, along and, far and enough, the risk is lower for the big company. They can buy something as a higher chance of making it to market. Yeah. Well, this is true, too, with the, the big oil companies, right? I mean, ExxonMobil doesn't really do any exploration and production. If, you're, if you find oil off the coast of Ghana or, you know, in Kenya or wherever, they'll come and buy you. <laughs> they, they'll do it that way. And actually, ExxonMobil's been one of the best movers in that space. They have really deployed their capital beautifully. Um, but they're not trying to go punch holes in the ground uh, dry holes <laughs> in the search for, for more oil. So it seems pharma followed that model, uh, Big Pharma did. Um, but we recently saw this tie-up yesterday fall apart between Allergan, the company I was just talking about, and Pfizer. That was to be a, I don't know, $130 billion or so yeah, merger. Yeah, that's the one that fell apart, right? Yeah, yeah. Based yeah, on the tax consequences. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sympathetic, you know, the U.S. corporate tax rate's the highest, among the highest in the world, maybe the highest in the developed world, and that's not very good for capital formation here in the U.S. Um, and, you know, the divisive rhetoric about the rich versus the poor doesn't help either, because when companies can grow here at home, it benefits us all. So, but yeah, that, uh, that was viewed too much um, like an inversion, um, because Allergan is already based in Ireland um, for the lower tax rates. Um, and the merger with Pfizer would have left their headquarters in Ireland as well, a kind of backdoor tax inversion since the inversions have been frowned on over the last year or so. Um, just moving your headquarters to Ireland is <laughs> not very easy nowadays. So maybe they thought they could disguise it as a, as a merger and get the same effect well, plus whatever benefits the merger might bring. So, so do you so, think we're, we're here to stay in this uh, place where at least the biotech med device companies, even though we haven't talked about med device companies really, um, do you think that they're going to continue to outsource their R&D to venture capital in some way to, to startups? Or at some point is somebody going to stand up and say, let's do more in terms of R&D? Are the... Genentech's of the world going to say that that's a better path. Yeah, it's been a durable model in the um, energy space. There's no question. I think it's probably a durable model um, for big pharma um, as their drugs run off. And, you know, I have many, many ethical challenges with big pharma, you know, um, parallel imports and a lot of the things they do. The drugs they develop and sell in the rest of the world are far cheaper than the drugs they sell us here at home, and they're the same formulations. Um, I've had several friends who are lawyers, and a couple of them have worked for Big Pharma. One of them in particular shared some gruesome stories about how they would go after these, what they call parallel imports, where you know you can arbitrage the difference buying the same drug in Indonesia or Singapore, bring it into the U.S., where it's, you know, uh, 25% of the price of the U.S. drug, 
Um, and the pharma companies would, of course, ruthlessly go after those those arbitrageurs, but they would argue that the U.S. drug market is different, that the drug formulations are different, that um, the U.S. is more stringent, as if the Singapore government wants their citizens to Right, die. right. <laughs> <laughs> know, right? And they're exactly the same formulation. He's like, we just sometimes change the formula a little bit or change the color of the pill so we could trace it. But we were pretty adamant about so you know, this is um, and uh, this is something that's grossly unfair. One other thing, and add that to the list <laughs> of things we deal with here in America. But yeah, aside from that, I, I think the the model in in um, pharma is probably going to keep going in that way, um, which is which is which is probably a good a good model. Right. I, I, it seems to me that that's the way it is in med devices too. It, it seems to be good for me at least because I understand how to try and turn a five dollar bill into more money. Uh, yes. Right. Words. Right. 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 And and um, and I guess in a sense you're appealing to um, an investor, your your small IP or device maker, and you've got say a big Medtronic or uh, some other company. They've got the distribution network. They've got the sales. You know, they've got something they can really take a great idea very quickly um, to all corners of the market. I mean, those the distribution is so critical. Right, right. It's so undervalued by most market participants. You know. So, Chris, I think this ends our podcast. We're out of time. Hey, Neil Modi, I've got a lot of love for you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. There's a space for everyone in my heart.